Hey there, and welcome in to another episode of the Pull Up Jays podcast. A lot to go over on this episode. Of course, we're going to recap what happened last weekend, the crazy turn of events that's led to ASU's seven-game win streak, those games against Oregon and Oregon State. Then we've got a conversation with Pac-12 Network studio host Mike Yam, just to kind of go over the conference of how wild this has been. How how realistic of a chance does ASU have to hold on to that top spot in the conference? Who's coming? What to expect from the UC, UCLA and USC games this weekend? And a lot more. All coming up on episode 10 of the Pull Up Jays podcast. Man, do we have a lot to go over this episode. It almost feels so surreal that ASU has been able to make this turnaround just to pull a complete 180 on their season. As they've been going through this and and trying to write game stories and and sidebars, it's it's almost a a balancing act of what I've noticed. And I, I have a feeling this is kind of how a lot of people think about it is... ASU, yes, has won seven straight games, and now they're atop the Pac-12 and all that. And at some point, when do you stop acknowledging how far they've come, how big of a turnaround they were at, how deep of a hole they had dug themselves two months ago, and start saying, this is the team. This is the team that's going to go into March for Bobby Hurley. And it's almost a balancing act of, okay, Yes, they've done all these things, but now you almost have to erase all that and, and say, okay, here's a team that needs to win the next four, probably at least three, to, to clinch a share of the Pac-12. And But every time I, I want to do that, it's just so hard not to go back and think, man, this is a team that lost by 40 points to St. Mary's two months ago, the middle of December. They look terrible. Three players scored. Alonzo Verge had 43, maybe passed the ball like twice, maybe. It is so bizarre how this has happened. And and the question that, that people want to know is like, how? What what changed? Was it some crazy halftime speech? Was it some player doing something in practice that changed everything? And I was like, I, I asked every, every player that I talked to over the last, after the Oregon and Oregon State game, okay, like, like, what clicked? Like, what changed? You guys somehow went from being a team that had basically been left for dead after that St. Mary's game. Then they clawed back a little bit. Then you lose to, by 28 in Tucson. It was like, okay, this this team's done. Maybe they make the NIT. Maybe. But you start looking at next year, and you're like, okay, people start getting excited about Josh Christopher and Cliff coming in. It's like, all right, wow, they can maybe build for the future. Now it's, wow, this is the best team Bobby Hurley has ever had in Tempe. And how do you how do you rationalize that? How do you say this this team, this this one, the one with Alonzo Verge and Remy Martin and Ramella White and the one that was just god-awful two months ago, this is the best team. And that's what's hard to fathom. And I, I go back and and I think it's good to to look back on that, to see how far this team has come. And then Look at the differences in it. Okay, what do you remember about that Arizona game? And what do you remember about this Oregon game? Okay, here, the differences. Man, the ball is moving a whole lot more. You could tell that right away. 
the Arizona games, I think there were a lot of people frustrated by how quickly they would take up the ball and just huck up shots. Shot, shot, shot. It's like, uh, what is that, the little Johnson? Shot, 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 shot. That was basically ASU's offense. It was no passing. We're just going to keep hucking up shots. Especially there were just some terrible ones. I mean, that was when Rob Edwards was in his slump, and him and Remy would go down the court. They're double teamed and just throwing up 30-footers like it was nothing. And then I remember Arizona had like 20 fast break points because of that. And that was the point. It was, okay, this is this is a team that I don't want to say selfish, but definitely not playing a team brand of basketball. And then you, you started to see it come uh, into fruition a little bit more. I, I remember talking to Rashawn Burno and doing an article about they really keep track of their scoring percentages based upon how many times they push the ball around the arc. So if it goes into the left corner and then comes around back to the right corner, that's one rotation. And they would calculate no rotations, um, the shooting percentage, and then one, two, three, how many times it moves around the arc. And the shooting percentages went up significantly every time. The funny thing is they've been telling those stats for three years, but it seemed like it took such a such poor performances for it to finally start kicking in and start uh, meaning something to these guys where they were they were playing a team basketball and they were pushing the ball and getting into the hands of everyone and pushing it to Romello White. And Romello White, man, people give him a lot of credit for his footwork in the paint and, and some of the stuff he's able to do around the rim, which have, have all been drastic improvements. But the thing he's always been really good at is passing the ball in the post. I mean, I think people forget of, of that guard U team. What made it so good sometimes is they could throw the ball into Romello, teams would go double-team him, and then he was always very open to kicking it back out to guys like Shannon Evans and Cody Justice for uh, open threes. And that's what you've started to see is <clears throat> I think everyone knew that, that ASU is not the best shooting team on the planet. What they are is they're a pretty dogged defensive team. They're a incredibly fast and rugged um, group when you can get them out in transition, when they can get the defensive rebound and it doesn't matter who gets it because they're just going to keep pushing it up the court, that's when ASU is at its best. That's when Hurley's offense and all the freedom that it allows really works is when you can give these guys freedom. It's tough to give guys freedom in the half court sometimes because there's a set defense and there's switches and all this type of different stuff that sometimes I think lends itself to bad shots and bad decision making. But you have to to look at what they've been able to do. And it sounds so cliche, but it, it's, yes, it is. It's them playing a more, them playing as a team, them passing the ball, them playing the full 30 seconds on defense. And one of the things that I found really interesting is I remember talking to Kamani Lawrence, I think it was after the Washington series, because they lost to Washington State and then beat Washington. And it was kind of, why, why is ASU so inconsistent? Why have they been so inconsistent for the last five years? And I remember asking uh, Kamani Lawrence, who's had his own fair share of struggles this season, I think a lot of people were almost uh, would get mad. Him, him and, I've noticed, Kamani Lawrence and Mickey Mitchell have been two of the, definitely the most attacked players uh, by ASU fans on Twitter. 
and I get it. It's it's two guys that are in the starting rotation and uh, don't average five points a game, and that's yes, not going to lend itself very well to fans watching on TV. And Kamani, I think, would be the first to tell you he's had a, a pretty rough season. But he told me something that that I kind of I kept watching for as the seven game winning streak went on. He said the ball has energy, and when you get it into guys' hands, it makes them feel part of the game. So they don't sulk and they don't hang their head and they get back on defense and do all this thing because they feel part of the game. And I was like, wow, that's that's really interesting. Like that for a guy like him who it seemed like would only touch the ball in the corner and then shoot a three and often miss. I was like, okay, that makes sense is the more times people are, are throwing the ball to him, the more he feels comfortable when he finally does get it and finally does release a shot. And the more you, you start to see it is when ASU's offense is running, everyone's touching the ball on every possession. Then when guys like Kamani Lawrence have a shot, they're not rushing it. They feel comfortable it's not this thing where, oh, I haven't touched the ball in five minutes, so I better throw up a shot. It's, yeah, let me just make the right decision. And I think that's where just the, the little stuff has come into play. And it's, it's an annoying thing for people to, to hear of ASU's winning streak being because of the little things and being because they're moving the ball and, and guys are buying in and all that the cliche type things. But it's honestly, it's probably true. It would almost seem more crazy if just some something happened, like something clicked, where maybe Rob Edwards hit seventy five percent from three for five games. Like that would almost seem odd, more odd to me. And the other thing is that seems less sustainable than what ASU has going now. If you've watched ASU's games, it, somehow they're getting better every game. The Oregon State game for how close the score was. I still thought they played really well. Oregon State just hit some incredibly tough shots, took it down, took the shot clock down almost all the way, and, and ASU just missed um, some open looks. And, and that's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not, ASU wasn't losing because they were shooting early on the shot clock. ASU wasn't losing because they weren't getting back on defense in transition. ASU wasn't losing because they were turning over the ball 20 times. ASU wasn't losing because they had two assists, and it's things like that. It's like, okay, if ASU did lose that game, I don't think anyone would have been in, in full panic mode like some of the other losses they've had this season. So that 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 those are kind of my my main takeaways of what has transpired through this seven-game winning streak. I think it it has been a lot of little things. It has been a lot about guys buying in. The interesting thing, too, is, for how much, and we're going to get to this with Mike Yam, players have bought into Bobby Hurley. It's tough to talk to a guy and be like, what what changed in the seventh game winning streak and, and not them not to say, we just started buying into Coach's message, started buying into it. That, again, sounds ridiculously cliched. We just bought into Coach's message. Coach told us to do this, and, we, you know, it just clicked. It just clicked one day. What? Like, that doesn't make any sense, but... I, I don't know. The more they were giving examples, the more they were opening up about it. I was like, oh, I mean, I guess. I guess that that could have something to do with it. Some of it, uh, like Tayshawn Cherry was saying, is I guess after the, the Washington State game, he, he kind of had an impassioned speech 
with the team and I guess he wouldn't go fully into it but was doing things that that Cherry was like man we just saw like really how much he cares and I don't know everyone just kind of felt the need that we had to match that and I was like okay like that that makes some sense and I think we saw it against Oregon State is you you see how how passionate Hurley is passionate Hurley is on the sidelines a lot of people take that as antics a lot of people think that it's this not necessarily a gimmick but this crazy dude on the sideline just going ballistic and there was one point I think a few people on Twitter were bringing it up is he had a bandage on his head people were wondering why well he was trying to show the refs that he thought Remy got foul in the head so he starts banging his head with his hand well his Duke National Championship ring pierced the skin and he was bleeding out of his head <laughs> like <laughs> could you imagine like you're you're playing and, and your coach is just bleeding because he's like beating himself not not beating himself not trying to to hurt himself but just getting that amped up about these things and it like it's just a crazy thing of, of they're taking on the identity of their head coach and again talk to Mike Gam about this you see it with other programs around the country around the conference what UCLA is doing right now with their five-game win streak and them being a half game out of first place in the Pac-12, they're playing what Mick Cronin does, what he did at Cincinnati. They're getting their defense is great. They're moving the ball again. They're getting the ball down low. They're playing the brand of basketball. They're not turning the ball over, not making mistakes. That's the brand of basketball that that Mick Cronin preaches. What he did at Cincinnati, why they were so good in Cincinnati. And you start to see it of teams this time of year buying into what their head coach is telling them. And that's the the interesting part about coaching is just how much psychological it is. And you're trying to get these 18 to 22-year-olds to buy into a message that you're spewing to them. And how effective it is sometimes, how much, um, how far you need to go in that message, I think that's on the coach to... To decide for his team, so let's we'll go over the the Oregon and Oregon State game. We I touched on with Mike Gam of just the UCLA and USC, so I won't get too much into it. But other than the fact of let's run through the Pac-12 standings right now, um, just to kind of show you the importance of, of that. ASU leads the the conference, ten and four in conference, nineteen and eight overall. There's three teams behind them, just a half game out. Oregon, UCLA, and Colorado, all at 10-5. and five. Then a game out is Arizona, 2.5 games out is USC, and Stanford's three. UCLA wins that game. All of a sudden, <clears throat> they vault themselves into first place. Uh, who saw that coming? I think that's almost more shocking than ASU, just given how bad UCLA looked, that they lost by 20 with it three weeks ago, I think that that's pretty surprising. And there were also ASU fans getting very upset. I think it was Dickie V and uh, Seth Davis going, UCLA is the hottest team in the country. Oh, man, the Bruins are on fire. Hottest team. I even saw some U of A fans were like, um, ASU's won seven straight, and uh, UCLA, by my math, uh, sevens more than five, and it was just it was funny of of people going so crazy about UCLA. 
that, oh, they won five games, oh, hottest team in the conference. It's like, well, uh, the, the other one in Tempe has won seven and looked pretty damn good and just beat UCLA by 20 three weeks ago. But I digress. Um, to show you, yes, this weekend of max importance for the um, the conference. The interesting thing, I mean, I don't know. I, I find this kind of odd in college basketball is, does anyone care if you win the conference? Like, it doesn't mean anything. Especially, like, not the conference tournament where you could maybe steal a bid, but, like, the regular season? Like, what does that really mean? Are you Is that going to be someone hanging a banner in Desert Financial Arena if they, they win the conference? Like, it doesn't get you anything. I guess it's a, a nice recruiting pitch. I guess it's something to hang your hat on of, in 2020, ASU was the best team in the Pac-12. I guess there's that, but in other sports, uh, even in, in football, you win your conference, okay, that means something. You go to a better bowl and you do all these different things and you're probably in the Rose Bowl. It's like in, in basketball, it's like, yeah, great, you, you won the you won the conference, now you go play a conference tournament and then they, you get seeded, just not based on what you did in the conference, but overall, I don't know. I, I guess that's maybe just a, a dumb thought of, of what does this all really... Does anyone really care about this, or does it mean a whole lot? I don't know. I guess it's it's more of a pride thing over anything. But let's go back to the Oregon Oregon State game. So on Thursday, ASU beats Oregon 77-72. On Saturday, they beat Oregon State 74-73. That came down to the last second. Oregon State actually had a pretty solid look in the corner as the clock expired, but it, it rolled around the rim, couldn't go in. The more impressive one, though, is the Oregon. 77-72 over the 14th ranked team in the country. And, wow. I don't... So, I remember writing it uh, that night of of ASU just beat, like, the number 14 team in the country. And and Bobby Hurley celebrated. And all the players celebrated. And and the fans didn't rush the court. And I think when you look at, at how Hurley has transformed that program... I, that was just almost shocking to me, it, and I think it you had to take a step back to look at it like, like that's how far this program has come of, of where you can beat the number four team in the t- country and act like you've been there before because you have. That that was just kind of cool to see of being like, okay, wow, like they don't feel no one feels the need here to do this. They know that this game is important, but not the craziest thing on the planet. Um, but you look at some of the stats from ASU. Rob Edwards had an incredible shooting night. 9 of 15 from the field, 5 of 9 from 3. And despite the fact that Remy Martin only had 11 points, only had 5 assists, didn't play his best game, it was guys like Alonzo Verge off the bench who had 26. Think about that. Alonzo Verge and Rob Edwards combined for 50 of ASU's 77 points. And the crazy part about that is you watch the game and you really couldn't tell that I would say that the fact that uh, those two had, was that, 60, 75, I don't know, 75% of, um, <clears throat> oh, I guess that would be what, 60, 65, I guess, 65% of ASU's total points. It didn't feel like that during the game, and that's a good thing. You don't want it to. And a lot... Well, let's go to Alonzo Verge for a second. So, 
I think over the last, like, I don't know, 7, 15 games, he's been coming off the bench um, quite a lot. Uh, there was a stat I saw by ASUSID, Doug Tamro. He said, Alonzo Verge, 17.5 points per game in his 15 games off the bench, leads the nation, shooting 51% from the field in that time. Wow. You talk about Verge, and I think early on there was this concern. Okay, here's this touted Juco guy coming into Division One. How is he going to adjust? How is he going to play? And he looked timid at times, and when he didn't, he was making mistakes. He was turning the ball over. He was driving into traffic and just hucking the ball up. He wasn't passing. He At Moberly Area Community College, where he came from, he was the only dude that had the ball. Like No one else. He wasn't passing to anyone. He had the ball in his hands all the time. At point, he had to adjust to playing with Remy Martin, a guy who wanted the ball in his hands at all time. And I think it took him a little bit to get there. I think it took him a little bit to to learn how to play with bigger guys and learn how to play with more skillful guys. When he's driving to the lane, you can tell he does a much better job at contorting his body and, and getting shots off that aren't blocked. And he goes in with a vengeance instead of almost his timidness. He is much more confident. You can tell, oh my gosh. He he loves to to yell and chirp over at the bench. I at the Oregon State game, one of his buddies, uh, God, is Sean Sean something or other on Oregon State's bench. They played together in community college, and so Verge hits a step back on the free throw line and starts yelling at Wayne Tinkle. He's like, "Coach, Coach, why do you put Sean in?" Sean's the only one that can guard me on this. And he's just going every shot he made. He made sure the Oregon State bench knew it. And I was just, I was laughing so hard. It was, it was funny to see and kind of cool to see his personality come out like that. Because I think at times, um, ASU hasn't been able to talk. And, and so to see him do that and flow with the confidence of, of their win streak was, was kind of cool. But the, the other thing, the Oregon game, they held. Peyton Pritchard incredibly in check. Like Oregon only shot 42% from a field, 28% from three. Pritchard had 18 points, but he hit like three or four threes in the second half. I mean, just stupid shots where he was so far, no one should have been guarding him. No one really was. He was shooting 30, 32 footers, just knocking him down. It's at that point, you're like, oh my God, like, this dude's just on a different level. Like nothing, nothing we can do about that. But to shut him down, to shut down Duarte, who's another Juco guy. It's actually funny. Uh, at the offseason, the, for the junior college rankings, Chris Duarte was number one. Khalid Thomas was number two. It's kind of interesting to see. One's starting for Oregon. The other's on the bench for ASU. But, uh, yeah, it was... I think it was a, a very important game for ASU. Just they they shut down Oregon defensively. They shot the ball extremely well. And the interesting part, they had 17 assists on 29 field goals. That's more than 50% assist um, ratio, which I don't think ASU has had very often this season. They only turned the ball over 13 times, which means – your assist-to-turnover ratio is also pretty high. So that, I don't know. I, I'm trying to, 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 to sum up of, of how 
it just felt like ASU was flowed. They had a rhythm. They had a, a plan. They played how they wanted to play. They were getting out in transition. They had Jalen Howes guard, guarding Pritchard when he went in. They were forcing turnovers. Rob Edwards had a few steals. So did Remy Martin. They were getting out on transition. It was. I thought back of the St. John's game from the beginning of the season. It was like, wow, when ASU was at its best, this is what they're doing. They're stopping teams on defense. They're being pests to, to the opposing guards like Peyton Pritchard. Then they're scoring in transition. They're getting the crowd involved. They're doing all these things, and and it comes together. And going back earlier, they were playing team ball. It just all flowed. There was a rhythm. There was a plan. There was all these different things of this isn't the, the typical ASU offense of we're going to run down and shoot. We're going to be in the half-court offense all the time. And, man, I think that it gives you a lot of hope going forward. The other thing I want to just point out of – what happened in the Oregon and Oregon State game. So the Oregon State game, um, it was kind of more diverse in terms of who scored. Alonzo Verge had 17. Remy had 17. Romello White had 15. Kamani Lawrence, a season-high 14 points, scored a nice 6 of 9 from the field, had two threes. Rob Edwards had 10 points despite shooting 3 of 10. But the, the other guy I think people, I mentioned it, get a lot of sh- crap on Twitter is Mickey Mitchell had zero points in 23 minutes, only had two rebounds, one steal. You watch him play, though. The dude is the most unselfish guy on the court. Passing the ball really doesn't even look to shoot half the time. He's kind of embraced his role as this glue guy. And when he does that, it people want to play with that type of guy, a guy who moves the ball around the court, who gets them open looks, who isn't afraid to kind of throw in the daring bounce pass um, in traffic, who will find the cutter who's coming in from the baseline. And for as little as Mickey Mitchell provides stat-wise, he provides so much more in terms of, of being a team guy, in terms of doing all the little stuff. And, and just watch when a rebound goes up. A ball hits the back rim and is floating up in the air. Mickey Mitchell is at the free throw line running in with a vengeance. Like he jumps off a trampoline, really has just no regard for his body. He is going up for that rebound. I think that's a guy that teams need. You need the dude that just doesn't care. The dude that does not worry about his stats. Like the dude that's just going to go for rebounds, going to make sure other guys get the ball. And when that happens, I think it's, it's easier for everyone else to play team ball. It's easier for guys to to feel confident because they know they're getting open shots. They know Mickey's probably not going to shoot, so they're they don't care uh, about passing to him because he they know it's only going to help the team. I don't know. I just thought I'd I'd shout that out of of how I think important he is and how much he's he's flown under the radar because I think he's a lot more important to ASU than his stats suggest and. Going forward, that's that's going to be huge. A lot of people are wondering why he's in the starting lineup, averaging like 1.5 points a game. That's why. Because he'll dive out of bounds for the ball. He'll go up for the rebound. He'll just dive into a huddle to try and get the jump ball. He'll just basically just do whatever it takes to win. And I think you need a guy like that. So that that kind of covers it of, of what ASU's seven-game win streak has been about. That Oregon-Oregon State game. They've got UCLA on Thursday, USC on Saturday. 
And this is a fight for the Pac-12, which is a crazy thing to say that, what I don't know what today's date, February 26th, ASU is atop the Pac-12 alone. Um, we're going to talk about that all coming up right now with Mike Yam. And now let's get to our conversation with Pac-12 Network Studio host, Mike Yam. A little apologies, we did the interview outside and it was a bit windy, so uh, you can hear some of the, the rattles um, going on in the background. I apologize for that, but nonetheless, I uh, thought it was a great conversation, and here you go. Yes, yeah, sorry about that. I was uh, trying to get it work on this app, and it just did not go. Um, but thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, I mean, when you look through the Pac-12 standings right now, as they are two weeks before the regular season ends, uh, how, how different is this than what you expected at the beginning of the year? You know, I actually felt like it would be tight. I, I didn't think we'd be looking at essentially four teams with ten wins and we're, we're basically like a half game separating five squads. I didn't think we'd be looking at, you know, five teams you know, this short period of time to go before being is basically two two weeks before the season would be five teams spots. I thought we'd get a little bit more clarity than than we do have. But I did feel like for guys which makes it kinda of awesome for you or Sam. Yeah, because you you mentioned all that and it's uh, I think there were a lot of people that kind of figured it would be close, but it, you know the Arizonas, the Oregon's, the Washingtons would would be up there too. And realistically, the biggest surprises are are ASU and UCLA. When you look at, at what those two teams have been able to do over the last three weeks, how how shocked were you just to look back on it? Oh, it's remarkable. Uh, you know, I felt like ASU had the potential to do this. Now, I won't say that I thought they'd be seven games in a row in the full position at this point. I, you mentioned the Mick Cronin thing, which is so interesting because there were a lot of people that, that kind of wrote off, wrote him off before he even arrived in Westwood. They they saw the hire, they saw all the failed guys that the US UCLA tried to go after, and and a lot of people thought that Mick Cronin was their fourth, fifth, sixth choice. Yeah. When you, when you talked to him, did you get an idea for from him that that he's really established his culture? in Westwood so early? Yeah, I think he's getting there. You know what's interesting about that? I think he could ask USC fans about the situation. And last time I checked, Pete Carroll, you know, when he got hired, was like the fifth or sixth yeah. option uh, for the school. And it, it turned out pretty well for them yeah. in that regard. And, you know, the thing I love about Mick is I don't think he cares about any of that stuff. <laughs> I think the one thing that resonated from the interview that we did, you know, and I haven't had a ton of time just because it's year one for him. I think it's just maybe the third time I've, I've had an opportunity to talk to him. And this was the longest situation that I've had with him when it was basically like 30, 45 minutes or so. Just yeah. to get to know him a little bit. I, I, I don't think he cares about the perception. I think he cares about one thing, and that's teaching his guys how he wants them to play. And I think the, the dramatic difference in, in just listening to him, and I think I even asked him this question, but he talked about teaching his guys basketball and you know what he expects from them on the defensive side deflections uh creating turnovers those types of things that that weren't always happening earlier in the season 
him. And I had asked him, you know, when you go to Cincinnati, and he was there and those teams had success, and yeah. it sounds like he didn't necessarily have to teach as much. And maybe that's not the best way of putting it, but, you know, he was teaching – you know, for a long period of time, his guys, so when he wasn't around, his upper classroom were showing some of the younger guys, here it is, you step in year one at UCLA, and yeah. there is, there's no one to kind of teach other than him and his staff, so I think it's taken a little bit of time, but they're, they're right now ahead of schedule based off of what we thought they could be this yeah. season. Chris Smith's been great, Cody Riley, yeah. Tiger Campbell's doing it at the point guard spot, they got some guys on that team. Yeah, we'll stick with the coaches thing, because I, I think it's really interesting that um, during Pac-12 media days and just some of the, the times you're around campus of you interacting with some of these coaches, Bobby Hurley is on the court a very fiery guy, but I've noticed off the court very um, almost, I don't know, not humble in a way, but almost quiet at, at points and really just wants to talk about basketball. W- what was the vibe that you've gotten over the past four or five years from just talking to him? Basketball junkie, and yeah. I hit the nail on the head because when you have conversations with him, he is—he's a polite guy. He's a thoughtful interview. He's a thoughtful person to talk to, and I've always enjoyed my conversations with him. But you're right. I mean, and your assessment is fairly accurate. I feel like every time I watch a basketball game, the commentators, whoever's calling it, whatever network, they're referencing that fiery attitude. Yeah. He's competitive, and and I love that. I mean, you want you want to see a passionate coach on the sidelines. He gets fired up, which is just awesome. I think back to his Duke days. You know, I grew up Jordan in the Northeast, New Jersey. Yeah, was a Duke fan growing up, and, and Bobby's a little older than I am, and, and I remember watching him and being a fan of of those Blue Devil teams over the years. So it's been cool to interact with him over the last couple of years. I'm thrilled for for his success. I mean, what he's done with that program is remarkable from a recruiting standpoint, from an NCAA tournament appearance standpoint, energizing. Um, you know, the student body there. I mean, you know, years ago, Jordan, I don't know how long you've been covering this team, but... The few, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Pac-12 Network launched this our eighth season. Yep. It, it didn't look like that. No. The way it looks now, and it's rocking uh, in the desert, so yeah. he, he's done a fantastic job, and I can't help but think, you know, if a guy like Jordan stays, you yeah. know, I know, obviously, I saw him get some burn uh, the other night in the NBA. I, I, can you just imagine what the team could have been with, with a guy like that this yeah. season? Yeah. Um, but but he's, he's done an awesome job, and I think he's the front runner along with Nick, maybe Tad, is in that conversation as well for coach of the year. You know, Mark Fox has done an awesome job. Kyle Smith has done a, yeah. done a tremendous job. But, you know, I think it still comes down to winning. So, um, you know, at the end of the season, we'll, we'll find out. I think, you know, these guys will have an opportunity to submit themselves as, as coach of the year. You, you mentioned the, just the perception of ASU from when you guys launched the Pac-12 Network eight years ago. When you go around to different campuses, is – how has the perception changed um, in just the way that other people talk about and, and view ASU basketball? Yeah, they're a threat. I mean, I take it a step further, Jordan. I, I wouldn't even just call it basketball. I would just say the programs with football and men's basketball in particular. You know, when, when Herm took over this job, and I got to know Herm working with him at ESPN, and I thought yeah. it was I thought it was going to be a tremendous hire, and I know people were kind of laughing at the hire from, from Ray Anderson's standpoint, but the more you get to know Herm, the more you realize he's going to crush into recruiting. Yeah. The trajectory of both of these programs right now is it's awesome to see. I mean, they are a real threat. When you have a conversation about forecasting um, for the upcoming season or you start talking about individual matchups even within in the calendar year, in the seasons that, that we're in, you know, those are not giving games. These are real threats. 
grants and these yeah. programs right now and build into something bigger and, and hopefully you know they're in the conversation for Pac-12 uh, championship they're not the bottom feeders right now they still yeah. got a little more work to do to, to solidify themselves at the top spot but I mean hell Bobby's right now just keeps the sole position in the first place yeah I want to go back to the Herm thing I've just about everyone I, I've talked to who knew Herm before ASU or during they always expected Herm to be a different guy um, than what they saw on TV when they met him in person. Did you have that expectation going in when you first met Herm? I, see, I actually think Herm is definitely different on TV than he is as a person in, in some regard. Like, yes. When when you watch him on television, whether it's an interview on Pac-12 Network or his years on ESPN, like he's you know he's a he's a character. You know he's a yeah. fun guy who is really jovial. Um, but you know, I also grew up in the Northeast when he was the coach of the Jets, Jets. and I was still in college at that point. You know, you listen to a press conference with Herm as a college kid. I was like, dude, I've run through a wall for this guy. Yeah. And I got to work with him. What, what people don't see is his personal touch. Mm-hmm. He, Herm gets to know you. He cares about you. He's interested in, in what you're doing. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was, I was, you know, we was just a kind of joke at ESPN. You know, you're above the line or below the line. I was kind of, I felt like I was straddling a lot. I got some really good opportunities and some opportunities that were not considered high profile. Yeah. You get to talk to him. Like, it didn't matter. He'd ask you how you were doing, how your family was doing. When I got the job at Pac-12 Network, he was like, hey, man, give me a call. Would love to meet up. You know, you know, getting to know Herm, I think the best part about working with him and getting to know him is just kind of that personal touch that he brings to, you know, your interactions. You know, I, I was, when I was at ESPN, you had some really good opportunities and some opportunities that were not exactly high profile. But, you know, it didn't matter. Like, he didn't treat you any differently than then, you know, Scott Van Pelt, like, he wanted to know how your family was doing. When I got the job at Pac-12 Network, he was so excited for me. I mean, yeah. it felt like he was maybe one of the more excited people for me than, than anyone else in the building. <laughs> gave me his number, he's like, hey, give me a call, you know, I got my place in Carmel, and, and it just really, really gracious, and I think the way he's built his staff, those guys have that type of personality. I mean, Antonio Pierce is that guy, yeah. and there was no doubt in my mind he was going to crush it in recruiting, and yeah. um, he certainly has, and, and the way he's built his staff and the expectation level that he has, he treats his players like they're adults, and I think they appreciate some of the freedom that they're given with, with Herm there. He's, he's been awesome in the NFL model. People were confused about it, but yeah. I think you would agree it's, it's played out perfectly in Tempe. It really has, yeah. That, that's interesting of of what you you said because I feel like you could go talk to a million people that have interacted with Herm and you're going to get a million different stories about him doing something nice like uh, offering that the house in Carmel or, or coming down it's it's kind of crazy just how how many people he's um, impacted um, but we'll get back to basketball as you as you've watched this ASU team um, you mentioned Alonzo Verge but realistically Remy Martin is Like we did at 
this good this quickly. That if the, the Pac-12 Player of the Year was was perhaps a MVP award, most valuable, I think Remy could win that. I, I think if you take Remy Martin off ASU, they are a worse team than if you take Peyton Pritchard off Oregon. But if you're going by their skill set this year and what they've done on the court, I, I agree. I think it's Pritchard. What do you? What has made him so good in his senior year? He is. I remember watching him at that Final Four his freshman year. It was. It was kind of this kid. It was like, all right, here's this this little guy who's kind of running around with Jordan Bell and Dylan Brooks, and what is he going to become? And and he has flourished um, under Dan Alban in this his fourth year. What has made him so good in his senior season? I think his work ethic is not spoken about enough. The more and more I talk to people on that campus, they tell me the kind of work that he's putting in. You know, it's interesting you mentioned when he was young, you know, Casey Benson yeah. was their starting point guard, and eventually, you know, Pritchard kind of took over that role for him, and Casey was an upperclassman who, if I'm not mistaken, was definitely only in the conference, maybe even the country, and it's just a turnover ratio. Like, yep. the dude just didn't make mistakes. And I, I give this, I always use this phrase, Dana, I trust. Dana Alvin, I give him a lot of credit because he saw the future of of his team. Yeah. Peyton Pritchard. Now, I don't think Dana Alvin could have foresaw Peyton having this type of impact. I mean, what people don't realize is Pritchard this season is having a historic year. Yeah. Guys in this league have not done what Peyton Pritchard's doing in terms of the assist points, um, how meaningful the minutes are, the clutch shots. I mean, there's been super talented guys in this league. There's no doubt a bunch of lottery picks and the whole thing. I'm not saying those aren't great players, but or not better than Peyton Pritchard. I just, I'm talking about sheer impact on the games. Pritchard has single-handedly carried this team. I don't think they're even remotely close. I think they're in the middle of the pack um, at best. Without Peyton Pritchard, there's been too much inconsistency and, and injuries like Dante not playing yep. um, that have really, I, I think, kind of kept this team from being in sole possession like ASU yeah. for first place in this conference. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's the work ethic, uh, which I know sounds like a, a boring and <laughs> answer, but I, I really do think it comes down to that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Casey Benson because I remember after that Final Four, it was like, okay, this guy's got another year. Then all of a sudden, he transferred to GCU for for an odd reason. It was it was kind of weird, but the more you mentioned it, of Dana wanting to go with um, the young guy, and he saw something that a lot of people didn't. That's yeah, that's an interesting point if you, to go back and, and kind of think about that that Final Four team. Uh, when you look around the conference and, and just at the top, I think like we were mentioning, Oregon, Arizona always comes to mind. It was who a lot of people picked as their their number one and two team. What what do you think has kind of led to, to Arizona being so inconsistent this season? You know, we talked to Sean on our podcast, and he said something that I hadn't. I, I know he said since, yeah. and I, he probably mentioned it um, throughout the course of the knock-on. We, we talked to him in conference play at the start, but he hasn't had a team led by three freshmen. Yeah. And look, Nico Mannion's been really good, but I don't know if Nico's necessarily totally lived up to the hype. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think maybe the bar was set pretty high for him. And, uh, Josh has been terrific from an athletic standpoint, but yeah. I don't know if he's totally found his real role in the team because the Naji has flourished the way that he has. But yep. I think when you talk about inconsistencies with that team, it, it's simple. It's as simple as just looking at three freshmen that are carrying the load, and when they're right, they are as good as anyone in this league. You know, 
if you tell me they're going to win, you know, three or four straight, depending on, on what seed they get in the conference tournament to go and win a conference championship, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can see that for every team. Arizona is one of them. Oregon's one of them. ASU is one of those teams that I can see running the table and, and going to do that. There's some other teams that have the potential, but to me, those are the three teams right now that, that I would point to as the most likely to win in Vegas. Yeah. You mentioned the, the freshman thing. Was it odd to you when Sean Miller shows up to Pac-12 Media Day with, with two freshmen? That's never, I don't even know if he's ever brought one freshman yeah. to Pac-12 Media Day. I have to, God, I remember there being a conversation about that. You know what's interesting? Those dudes, and I, I'm not comparing them to other Arizona players, because yeah. I've had a lot of really good a lot of really positive experiences with Arizona players, but those two freshmen, me and Josh and Nico, were as mature off-air and on-air as any player that we've had on Media Day. Really? Um, which, which says something, because they're, yeah. they're not... They, look, I mean, the, the amount of success that they've had before heading to Tucson is... It's apparent, like, they're used to being in the spotlight. A lot of them are talking about top 10, top 20 recruits themselves is really impressed because not every player in the league is that's upper class where I just kind of do a double take and I go really guys like yeah. this, this is kind of how you're acting uh, and those guys are really mature so it was, it was impressive that actually happens where where you turn there's guys offset and doing stuff and you're just like what what are you guys doing it, it is rare okay is rare. please don't follow up and ask me who because yes, I will tell you I but, won't I won't uh, it's, it's look by <laughs> and large I would say 95 99 God, it is, it's really, really positive. And <laughs> occasionally, there's an outlier uh, yeah. in the mix, and, and I keep thinking about one person in particular. But, uh, but generally speaking, the, there everyone is really, really terrific. Yeah, you mentioned how how tight the Pac-12 is at the top. When you look through it, and I know you're no bracketologist, but you keep up with it. How, how many teams do you realistically think are, are making the tournament out of the Pac-12? Yeah, I think it's a really good question because for most of the year, I've said five with the potential for six. I will still stick with that. I yeah. think the issue is, you know, the net rankings, we don't have a large sample size, so we don't know how the committee is completely using that tool. You know, I think State a year ago had a net ranking of like 33, 34, something along those lines, but their strength of schedule was, was brutally bad. Yeah. So they were on the outside looking in. You know, with RPI, you, you kind of had a, an idea of like, hey, once there's kind of like this, this line, like once you get to that line, you feel pretty good about your chances. And it was in like low, low 60s, basically. Yep. You feel pretty good. I don't know if you could say that right now Yeah. about the net rankings, but I think you know, feel great about the obvious teams, right? It's, it's yeah. no particular order. It's uh, Arizona State, I think, has played themselves in. Oregon is there. Colorado's in. Arizona's there. So that's four right there right yeah. in that mix. So five and six, I think you're looking at a combination of Stanford, I think, is, is in the mix there. Uh, USC, yep. you know, bad timing for them with, with some of the flu that was going through their locker room uh, the other day uh, against Colorado. Um, but I think UCLA is also kind of in that conversation as well. But UCLA is definitely the team that's got the most work to do. But yeah. I, I think, you know, safely feel pretty good about five right now. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I would say probably USC and then maybe, yeah, USC, Stanford right on the bubble, and that could go either way. Uh, yeah. if, if you were to look back on the, this Pac-12 season, 
what's one thing that's flown under the radar to you that has really impressed you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Daryl Terry is a player. Okay. I think is the future of the point guard spot in this league. I, I, I don't remember being this impressed by a freshman point guard who we didn't know a ton about. You know, like Nico Manning comes in, you kind of expect him to play pretty well, right? I yeah. mean, like, there's guys that just have this height, and, you know, Tyrell didn't have a ton of height, and he's been really, really good. Yeah. Um, I think Kyle Smith and Mark Fox are the perfect fits in their respective places, and I think both of those schools are going to be dangerous in, in the years to come. I think yeah. both those guys are going to be able to build some pretty good programs right now. Um, and I'm trying to get a third for you, and I don't know if I can come up with one off the top of my head. I mean, the freshmen have been pretty good so far this year. I think there's a chance for Colorado to make a run, but everyone's yeah. talking about them. But, you know, I, I think Terry has been an underrated story, and I think the job of Kyle Smith and, and Mark Fox needs, needs to get more. They need, they need more credit. Yeah, I remember watching Terry against Stanford and, and just couldn't believe how he was um, – just doing that, some of the stuff at such a young age, and and really going up well against Romello White, and, and playing um, just so versatile all over the floor. I think it would be awesome to to see him in the tournament, and maybe kind of take that next step a little earlier if he could get in. Yeah, yeah no, you know, it, 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 it's not a good comp in terms of skill set. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, Stanford had a player, Jason Randall, who yep. was as good of a scorer as we've had in this league. I, I'm pretty sure he's top ten, top seven uh, in the league history in terms of total points the one thing and he had Dwight Powell on his team and Dwight obviously has had a, had a pretty good NBA career so far yeah but the thing about Jason was he was he was ballsy like yeah. he had no problem taking <laughs> taking the big shot and I think that's the one thing when I watch Terry right now play my lord that, that kid is not shy about the big moment and yeah I think that's going to be a huge asset for, for Jared Haas next season and, and really the next couple of years yeah if if I were to tell you um, it, let's say ASU gets in the tournament, as a lot of us expect. Uh, what's What could hold them back, and, and what's the, the thing you think, man, if they just execute that, there's a chance, like a, a sweet 16, or maybe they make a run? Well, I think the one thing that holds them back is if they regress from the perimeter, yep. it's the ASU team that we've seen for a good stretch of this season. Yeah. Rob Edwards, some of those three balls not going down. Potentially could lead them is is that exact factor uh, to yeah. a Sweet 16 in the second weekend of the tournament, and that is the build the team's ability to score. I think the one thing right now that you're seeing from ASU that I love, it's not one, it's not a one off with Alonzo Bird. It's not one or two games, but he look. I think he's cemented himself as Sixth Man of the Year in this conference. Yep. Um, I think during this seven game winning streak, Jordan, you might know the numbers better than me, but it's it's something along the lines of like 20 points is what he's putting up. I, yeah. Yeah, it's like 19, and he, he leads the country um, in the last 15 games of, of guys coming off the bench in points per game. Yeah. yeah, so like to that point, like he's now coming into his own. Yeah. And I think when you get guys that all of a sudden are able to put a run like this together, they usually don't drop off. Yeah. And to me, now all of a sudden they got a real threat as a scorer along with Remy. And if Rob is knocking down shots, I mean, look, Romello White's footwork and yeah. his ability on, to score on the block is as good as any big uh, that we have in this league. So I, I, I do feel good about their chances. Um, you know, to me, though, it, it will all come down as simple as, you know, make your shots. Yep. But when they don't, it's been pretty ugly at times. And yeah. when they do, my lord, like, this 
team is they're dominant. Yeah, it's I always think back to there's that the ESPN has the jump show and they always have the players like it's a make or miss league, it's a make or miss league, and it's like I always watch ASU games and kind of think about that of like just they hit a few shots early and it just seems like their entire confidence just evolves yeah. and they get going in transition and then you play better defense and all of a sudden guys are open on the perimeter and it's so crazy just how much things shift of them hitting shots in like the first 10 minutes no doubt i mean yeah. look at that ucla game yeah they had 14 yeah. threes and like that's you know like hit shots like that it was too big of a hole and that was a pretty good ucla team as well. we've seen it they limited you know arizona like 25 percent shooting in that next game yeah i mean hell like that doesn't happen no. um and to your point you know doug howler versus team yeah tweeted out something the other day and i thought it was pretty interesting you know, the amount of minutes in games that ASU has led, and it's it's like a big number every single game other than maybe one uh, in the mix during the seven-game winning streak. So it speaks to this team's ability during this run to, yeah. to have good starts and to knock down shots. Yeah. That's really what the difference has been. Two weeks ago, do you think they, they hold it at the top and, and win the Pac-12 regular season for the first time? I think they're co-champs. I don't think I, get a, yeah. you know, I just don't think that with the, look, I think Oregon, we've been saying this for weeks, I, I, I would say like the last three or four weeks, I felt like 13, the way the league was playing, and the lack of road sweeps, I felt like 13 was going to be the number to win the league, Yeah. and right now I still absolutely think that's the number. I think Oregon's got a really good advantage because they're at home and they got the, the most favorable schedule, and they only have three games, so they go 3-0. and Yeah. I guess it's a 13. ASU right now has got to go 3 and 1. And that LA road trip is going to be really hard because UCLA is playing for something too. It's not only just senior, but they're playing for their NCAA tournament lives. Um, but I, I do think there's co champs. And to be quite honest with you, like there's there's a world where we're getting tri champs. Um, yeah. Well, but I, I think ASU right now has got a really good chance to go 3 and 1 and get themselves the 13 wins. Yeah. Do you know the. Has there been a time in like the last 10 years that. They've had tri champs. I I don't know. No, I I don't think there's been tri champs in the last ten years because there hasn't been in eight years. I've been at Pac-12. Okay. The year before I got there was a rough year for the league. Washington was uh, the conference champion and yeah. regular season champion and did not make the NCAA tournament that year. Um, and then I'm just gonna roll the dice and say in that tenth year where there were tri champs. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I think. All right. My last thing. Um, who do you who do you have in Vegas? Because I mean, that's a real. I mean, no pun intended. Roll the dice in terms of just who could come out of that. Yeah, I will say this. I do think the top four seed is is really important. Yeah. I know Oregon ran the table last year. I don't think there's another Oregon this year in teams. Let's just call it. You know, the entire league. I, you know, yeah. Be totally honest with you. Like, I don't think there's a team playing. I guess he's one seven straight, so you can make that argument. But what Oregon was defensively down the stretch yeah. was as good as any team in the country. And ASU, quite honestly, is just not there yep. right now. So I think it. I think the, the the tournament champion comes from the top four seeds because um, I just don't think anyone else can win four straight. And yeah. of that group, I feel yeah. Of course, I feel good about Remy Martin at ASU. Um, to me right now, and you'll probably, you know, anyone who's listening to this, because I, I know it's heavy ASU fans, <laughs> I'm probably cringe, but if Dante, if finally Dante comes back and he's playing meaningful minutes in these next three games for Oregon, that is a complete game changer yep. for the Ducks. 
for them is depth in the front court and real production from their bigs. You know, Dana's had some lineups where he's thrown four guards out there, which is, you know, different from a team from a year ago that was throwing out four guys, six, nine, or bigger. Yeah. So yep. they've, they've mixed things up a little bit, and Dana's done a great job. But if Dante comes back, I love Oregon's chances. And to be quite honest, I know Remy's hit a bunch of big shots this year. I really do think Dana Pritchard, the way he's played this year, he has just been, he's been special. Yeah. He's quite moments, and I think that's a real factor for this team. Yeah. Uh, but if you said to me, ASU wanted to be like, yeah, okay, th- yeah. those really would be my top two teams yeah. in Vegas. Yeah, and then, yeah, because you mentioned Oregon, ASU, probably at the top, but you told me U of A won it. You told me USC won it. Like, I'd be a little surprised, but I wouldn't be completely shocked. And I think that's what, what makes the that Vegas tournament so intriguing for really the first time in like three years where it's not a clear cut, okay, here Arizona's going to win, Oregon's going to win, and, and yeah, it's going to be a fun time in Vegas. Yeah, I mean, because think about this too. Like, if for Arizona to win three straight games, if they get a top four seed, those freshmen have to be consistent. And exactly. It's a consistent run for three. Can they do it? No question they can do it. I just, I don't know how likely it is. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> not, for, not for nothing, I mean, the safe, safe bet too in a lot of ways is Colorado. Because yeah. they, they, I know they just lost to UCLA. So I, I do think UCLA is for real right now. But they don't lose a ton of bad games. Like the Northern Iowa one uh, stands out. When we had Tad on the podcast, like he was, he was still pretty upset about that loss. <laughs> I mean, the way they lost to Kansas, and he would tell you, like they just got outplayed. Like Kansas was a better team than yeah. them. Um, but they're they're pretty they're known commodity out there. So I, you know what? I, I would I would see you also in that mix. I should not have not included them yeah. in the three teams that I think can win in Vegas. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time. Yeah, I really appreciate, appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Really appreciate Mike Yam coming on to give a state of the conference and and relive some of his moments and interactions with coaches around the conference. Really appreciated that. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Pull Up Jays podcast. On Thursday, ASU will be in Westwood to play UCLA. On Saturday, they'll be at, I think that's the Galen Center. Yeah, the Galen Center on Saturday to play USC. Two monumental games. If ASU controls their own destiny in the conference, um, this late in the season, I think for the first time ever. So, of course, we'll have an episode next week. Until then, have a great week.